This week on The Short Game, we are absolutely fantastic at falling. Welcome back to The Short Game, a weekly panel discussion of great short video games. Games that you can pick up and experience with an evening or a weekend. Uh, games that give you a lot for your time. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about Thomas Was Alone. I'm joined by Nate Heininger. How are you doing, Nate? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Um, good. This has been a good morning for me. Productive. I good. rearranged all the apps on my iPhone home screen. That, that takes some commitment. Yeah, I, it was a long time coming, Yeah, uh, and I really feel like I've turned my life around. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. You feel refreshed. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I am eager to talk about our game this week. Uh, before we do, though, um, playing any good games lately? Well, mostly Thomas is alone, and I still can't stop playing Faster Than Light. I'm still <laughs> playing that. I have still been playing it, too, although I have gotten not at all farther than I have been getting. I can consistently make make it very deep, but I've been mostly trying to unlock new ships right mm-hmm. now, and I'm stuck on the very random number-generated heavy uh, ships at this moment, just Man. kind of beating my head against a wall, hoping to run into a random encounter, mm-hmm. and <laughs> so far, no good. Damn. Yeah. Well, um, I have been playing a little bit of Titanfall. Ooh. Which has been interesting. It's kind of occupying my time. Um, I don't own a uh, an Xbox One. I don't actually. Uh, the only console I own is the PlayStation Three, and um, I haven't really turned that on except for Netflix in a while. Mm-hmm. But I've got a gaming PC, and with all the buzz about it, every podcast I listen to is talking about Titanfall right now. Uh, I finally picked it up because it went on sale on Amazon for like thirty five bucks, and I thought, well, why not? I'll give it a try. But it's been a weird experience for me because this is the first primarily multiplayer like FPS game that I've played in many years. Um, I was never a, a Counter-Strike guy. I never picked up Call of Duty. I never played any um, any of those games. I'm just not an FPS guy. Or I should qualify that. I love the first-person shooter feel. So I I will pick up any first person shooter with a good campaign mode. Um but this is this is a game essentially without a campaign mode. Um it's like all multiplayer. Even the quote unquote campaign is multiplayer. And so it's a really different yeah. feel for me. I'm kind of getting my ass handed to me like constantly. It's it's embarrassing. Yeah, that's kind of the uh the point of these games it seems though is unless you're willing to really commit and really spend a lot of time with it, you're just going to be bad. But there's the small victories. You know, you get a nice kill. You get up behind somebody. And and uh, I play a lot of Battlefield, mm-hmm. and I am awful. Just <laughs> just got it. And for the amount of time that I've been playing Battlefield, you'd think that there would be some signs of improvement, and there seems to be none. But I like to fly the ships and uh, and drive the jeeps and try to set up elaborate traps with C4 and landmines. Mm-hmm. And so I end up like 4 and 17, but those four kills are really cool kills. <laughs> <laughs> I am really, really liking the parkour aspect of Titanfall, but... I haven't really gotten excellent at it yet. You know, it's more that I can see people jumping around and traversing the like landscape of the game in these incredibly awesome looking ways. And I'm like, I want to do that. And then pow, I've just been headshot yeah. from behind. Um, and I'm also uh, really enjoying the way that you can sort of hop in and out of your Titan. Uh, the, the best sort of runs I've had with the game so far have been sort of uh, a mix of Jumping quickly into the Titan, you know, firing off a few, sh- a few shots, waiting for somebody to come after the Titan and immediately hopping back out of the Titan onto a building nearby and, you know, taking that person out while they try to fight my Titan. Jumping back into the Titan. And, ah, and the old on. Kansas City switch. <laughs> so it's really worked out well. Um, but 
even then, you know, on my best possible runs, um, you know, you're a, it's a six on six team gotcha. kind of thing. And um, I'm usually not the worst on my team, but hey, there you go. Right down there, yeah. like number two or three. It's pretty embarrassing. I think it's it's pretty clear that I haven't played this style of game since. Jeez, I can't even remember. I've. I may have never really played one of these in great depth. <laughs> this may really be the first one. I've, yeah. I've played some games that had a uh, a multiplayer um, scene and a single player campaign, and played the hell out of the single player campaign. Dived into the multiplayer for a little bit. This is the first time I've really truly dived into the multiplayer of a game like this. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Well, we'll see. What do you? Uh, anything you're looking forward to? Yes, and. This is an interesting kind of topic for this uh, podcast because it kind of fits into the short game aspect in that you pick it up, have one easy session, and sit it sit down or put it back down. But it's a very, um, I don't know. There's a lot of uh, controversy around what type of people like these games, and it's the <laughs> sports game genre. And mm-hmm. generally speaking, I don't really care for most sports games, but. As we've discussed in the past, I am a big baseball fan, and that extends through all levels of baseball, including baseball video games. And the new The Show is coming out for PS4 uh, next week. At the time of this release, it should have already been out. And I'm excited for it, mostly because, by all accounts, this is going to be the most beautiful PS4 game yet. And I know that's strange because it's just like humans on a big field of grass. <laughs> and you think, how could that be? Intricately modeled, individual <laughs> you know? blades bending it's... in the subtle breeze. Well, and that's part of it, yeah. And, you know, in games past, the crowd, it's hard to render 40,000 screaming people in an arena. You know, so they generally have just a not. Picture <laughs> yeah, the crowd. yeah, exactly. Or it'll be... Like the the last last year's games, the last ones that came out on the previous generation consoles, they did an all right job, but you could tell it was kind of the same like 15 or 16 people just dropped into every single seat in the stadium. And they kind of reacted individually, but if a ball was hit into the crowd, it was like a terrible, weird little mosh pit <laughs> where they all kind of dove at it and threw each other, and it just didn't... It was better than it had been, but it just didn't look good. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, this new game is just phenomenal as far as what they've been managed, what they've managed to accomplish with how the people look, how the stadiums feel with mm-hmm. proper lighting. And if you watch the videos for it, it really does look the closest I've seen thus far to something looking just like real life. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, it's not like photo quality by any means, but. Comparatively speaking, it's very, very good. That's so. awesome. Yeah, I think I'm for excited. me that genre won't truly become an attractive gameplay experience until they've got good proper 3D modeling of nachos. Oh, that's a that's a good point. <laughs> uh, we should write a letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, actually, on that thought, I um I read something recently. Now I can't remember where it was. Um, about uh different ways that. Facebook having bought Oculus Rift and and other companies who are experimenting with the same kind of VR stuff. uh, We're talking about using sort of game style 3D modeling plus immersive video and other things involved in a, in a, you know, a VR setup to do things like, you know, you get you a courtside seat at the Lakers game or something like that. And I thought that is absolutely perfect. You could combine uh, you know, video of an event plus some 3D rendered stuff of the, uh, you know, the sort of immediate surroundings of a person and give a really convincing experience of being at a sports game or being sitting in a movie theater or any of these other types of experience things where you're essentially a butt in a seat, but you're getting to experience something really cool. I just thought that was something that hadn't occurred to me that I would totally get a VR headset to sit in a, you know, convincing, real life accurate reproduction of a front row seat at a great concert. Yeah, you'll have to you'll have to make sure you get a very uncomfortable chair to sit in. Good to, point. To really, 
relive the experience. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I know that's kind of what Facebook had in mind. Everybody is, you know, upset that it might be going away from video games because Facebook I, wants. I don't think that it will. I, I have a, I, I have a very positive outlook on the whole Facebook acquiring Oculus thing. I, I'm totally excited about that technology. And as a PC gamer, I was kind of having my little, you know, moment of glee when the initial ideas surrounding it and you know the the initial release of the oculus was seeming to be sort of a pc gaming oriented thing but i think it is really for for all kinds of platforms and i think that facebook buying it isn't so much about facebook wanting to turn it into a facebook thing so much as facebook has been buying a lot of companies recently and i think essentially um, mark zuckerberg is just being really smart about buying companies that will help him make sure that that Facebook as a company is still going to be relevant even when Facebook as a product no longer is. Um, and I think you're going to see him kind of pulling the Disney strategy where Disney isn't so much a single brand and a single company. They're a conglomerate where they've got lots of little companies held under that same gigantic Disney brand. They own ABC, they own all these TV channels, they own ESPN, um, and they own all kinds of properties that aren't related directly to quote-unquote Disney headliner properties. Um, and that's so that no matter what direction the customer goes, they're there to make some money on it. And I think that's the kind of smart business decision that Zuckerberg is making when he buys these companies like like um, Oculus. He just wants to be prepared for whatever the next big thing is and make money on it. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they have to do something because, you know, we've seen time and time again that these social media sites at some point will be replaced. Mm-hmm. And John Carmack is uh, is a smart guy. I don't think he would stick around for it if Facebook was trying to turn it into 3D Farmville or something. <laughs> uh, I, for one, super uh, can't wait for 3D Farmville. <laughs> I cannot wait for the most immersive cow-clicking experience ever. Well, as a diehard Harvest Moon fan, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'm okay with this. Do you want to really get that up-close-and-personal cow-milking experience? Oh, where absolutely. You can... Uh, really feel the others. Um, I wouldn't have gone that far, but yeah, if <laughs> if we're able to accomplish that, I mean, uh, you know, I'll buy the ticket. So sign <laughs> sign me up. Um, okay. Well, um, I don't think I think perhaps the exact polar opposite of a 3D immersive uh, gameplay experience would be our game topic today. Thomas was alone. That was um, a good segue. Thanks. <laughs> Sweet segue, bro. Yeah. Thomas Was Alone is a 2D puzzle platformer built on the Unity engine. Um, just to kind of describe visually and gameplay-wise, uh, if you haven't already played Thomas Was Alone. And honestly, the best way to get a sense of what this game is all about, if you have never seen or heard of it, is go watch a quick video of it on the web. There's a lot of great trailers for it on YouTube, that kind of thing. But it's a puzzle platformer where you're, uh, it's in a very two-dimensional and minimalistic world. You're essentially controlling little colorful rectangles of various sizes that can all jump at various different heights. And uh, you're trying to move them through a puzzle platformer level where the levels are essentially just stark, uh, mostly black uh, shaped caves that you can hop your characters through to get them from point A to point B. Um, and that's putting it in the most minimalistic sense possible. It's a very minimal game. If you played this game with the sound off and also the subtitles off, it might be pretty dull. It, it has some it has some fun with the platforming, but it's a game that's about more than just its looks. Yeah, the um, the puzzles themselves aren't too terribly difficult. It's some of them I got hung up for a minute, but it's more about the atmosphere, the story, the music is phenomenal. It really and is. When, and when you put it all together, it creates a really really interesting 
playthrough. Mm-hmm. A really interesting game style. Something that I have not really seen before. I mean, the easy comparison in virtually every game ever since this game gets compared to it, but is Portal to an extent, and that it's the it's the puzzles themselves aren't particularly difficult, and the world isn't particularly you know shocking. Though obviously Portal is a, a deep 3D rendered game. Huh. That's a really interesting comparison because I didn't really draw much of a comparison between this and Portal. Ah, um, uh, see, I thought the th- like the tone of the game uh, was very very similar, mm, and somewhat. even and even kind of the progression. As you, you know, you see a skill, you watch it get to be used, and then it grows. And that skill, um, you find you have to apply it in a lot of different ways. And then other characters start to be able to use these skills and you swap between them. Much like the yellow, blue, and orange fluids from Portal 2. That's what I was thinking about the entire time. That's actually a really good point. Um, something that Mike Bithell said on Twitter. Uh, Mike Bithell is the developer of the game, and he's a really interesting guy to follow on Twitter if you're interested in game design and indie gaming. Because he, first of all, something interesting is that if you load up the game, the very first title screen, when you see Mike Bithell's name, he's got his Twitter handle right there in the credits, which is something that I'd never really seen before. And it's clear that that's something that he's really into, and he really engages with his fans on Twitter, but also just as an interesting person to follow as a person interested in games. And um, the other day I was uh, seeing him tweet uh, something that I thought really related to this game, which was a couple of tweets. He said, uh, let them see it, let them have it, let them use it, make them use it, extrapolate its use, let them master it. Stagger that sequence with 10 to 20 mechanics, and then you have yourself a well-planned game. Well, there you go. That's Thomas was alone. That's Thomas was and, alone. And, I and right. Portal. Portal, absolutely. Same yeah. exact thing. So in terms of its puzzle platforming mechanics, it is a great progression of little iterations on a theme. A very simple set of mechanics that are built up and up and up until you're solving complex puzzles. So it does its job as a puzzle platformer game, but it isn't just a puzzle platformer game. Um, because... I think uh, Mike Bithell, rightly so, realized that he could make you interested in a puzzle platforming game, um, but to really make you engage with it, uh, you have to have a story, you have to have characters, and you have to have um, a reason to want to complete the puzzles. And that's what I think is so really clever about the structure of the game. Thomas Was Alone has a narrator, um, Danny Wallace, who's a British comedian and uh, radio presenter, um, uh, narrates the entire game. And each one of your little squares has a name. There's Thomas, there's Chris and John and Claire and Laura and a bunch of other uh, names for these little rectangles with various shapes, sizes, and degrees of bounciness. Um, And... As you play the game, and you're controlling all of these characters, um, not all always all at a time, but usually at least two or three at a time, switching between them, um, uh, which actually uh, reminded me a lot of a game that I absolutely loved as a kid, um, Lost Vikings. I don't know if you ever played that. Did you ever play Lost Vikings? I actually did not. Is that a is that the Blizzard game? Actually, yeah. It was yeah. one of Blizzard's earliest games. I've heard all about it, and it's one of the only Blizzard games I probably have not ever played. You should try it. I had it yeah. on the Sega Genesis, although I've heard that I think it was also out on the um, SNES, and um, I'm not really sure which version is like the one to, to play. But it's a really great puzzle platformer where you play as a set of three Vikings who've been abducted by space aliens and you're trying to escape from their spaceship. And uh, one of the Vikings can jump really high uh, and run really fast. One of them has, it's been so long, I don't even remember what all of their powers were, but they all have different and complementary powers. And so you have to make your way through these complex puzzle-oriented levels, um, but using all three of the characters and switching between them. Worked really well for me as a kid because... I always looked for games where you could play in co-op because I had my brother there all the time and that would allow us to uh, each control one Viking and then it was a third Viking where we'd have to switch it off. But really um, works well for co-op play, but also fantastic if you're playing as a single player because 
all the levels are designed so that you can control one Viking at a time, switching between them, and uh, complete the level by using the unique powers of each one. And that's exactly the structure of Thomas Was Alone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's pretty interesting how uh, there's definitely multiple ways to complete each puzzle. Or at least I assume there's mm-hmm. multiple ways to complete each puzzle because, you know, there's the flat rectangle that you can bounce off of. Mm-hmm. And there's... Uh, spoilers. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Well, we've already kind of. <laughs> we will. There is a plot and we will do a spoiler alert here in a moment, yeah. but I don't think we're spoiling anything by talking about the mechanics. Yeah. And there's. <laughs> now, there, now you got me all mixed up. I was just going to discuss, uh, you know, like the stair mechanic is so is such a big part of it, where you have to like stack the squares on top of each other to form a little tiny set of stairs to get the lesser able to jump yeah. squares up to the next one. Absolutely, Mike Bithell, when he uh, discussed uh, somewhere, I read an interview with him where he discussed the um, the ideas behind the game, what brought the game out for him. And he said, in some places, you can see the game described as a game about friendship and jumping. (laughs) And uh, I really like that description. He said that the game all originally came from the uh, this sort of stacking mechanic of the characters. Because they're all rectangles, they can all stack pretty neatly on top of one another. Um, And that means that you need to uh, stack them in particular ways in order to get them all up over certain obstacles. And they're all sort of working together towards that goal, which gives you this sort of sense of, because the characters all have these personalities, thanks to the narrator, Danny Wallace, um, you're, uh, you kind of have this feeling of, oh, we're working as a team. All of my little squares are, are stacking up to help each other. Yeah. It's pretty silly how immediately attached you get to these little colorful rectangles. Mm-hmm. And the narrator will actually say things like, um, you know, Thomas giggled a little bit. And it's like, well, he doesn't. It's just a red rectangle that never shows any actual emotion. Or Sarah felt like she was inadequate or something like that. And it's, <laughs> yeah. What I, uh, what I think is really interesting about this is that the... Uh, the characters' personalities, and you're right, you never hear from the characters. All of all that we get of the characters is Danny Wallace narrating about them. Um, and so Danny Wallace is a sort of an omniscient narrator with a really charming British accent, narrates yeah. for all of the characters. Uh, if you want to have a successful indie game, have a British narrator, apparently. <laughs> yeah, um, actually, relating right back to the Stanley parable, these both had... And I played these two games, this and the Stanley Parable, actually back-to-back, which suddenly made me feel like I had fallen into a strange world where I had a British narrator following me around. But the great thing about this is that although we're we're learning about the characters' um, uh, personalities all through this narrator, the personality of each character is really tied to the mechanics of the game. As you're learning these... Uh, these characters and who they are. Um, you're also learning what their abilities are. And so, uh, you know, each character has a personality. They all have their motive. You know, we kind of hear what they want out of, uh, out. you know, we hear why they want to solve this puzzle. We hear why they want to escape this, uh, this sort of cave that they're in. Um, because we're hearing the the mon- monologue from Danny Wallace, and we also hear a sort of a running stream of how each character sees the world, how each character sees each other character. So we're really inside the head of all of these little rectangles as they work together to solve these puzzles. And because each one has their own little personality, and in a way they're sometimes somewhat tied to the character's abilities, you, you kind of learn the structure and the way to solve the puzzles as you're learning about the character's personalities. Like, for example, Thomas, he is a pretty average jumper. He's pretty typical in terms of speed, and he's pretty much average in terms of height amongst all the rest of the characters. So he's your sort of initial window into this world. But his primary trait is that he is brave. He is a uh, he's an explorer, and he wants to observe the world. So when you first start the game... Thomas is listing his observations about the world, and you're observing the world, too. And that's your initial goal. You're not solving a whole lot of puzzles when you first meet Thomas. Yeah, and some of his basic observations, too, are like, if uh, you fall into water, 
which is a way of dying in this game, it'll be like, Thomas observed that falling into water was bad. And <laughs> then you just kind of, well, that's now I understand a rule of this game. Absolutely. So you never, you, you do pick up all this stuff, but you get uh, Thomas's observations about it too. Um, and then all the other characters have uh, traits that are also kind of related to their, um, to their abilities. So Chris, who you meet next, is a much smaller square than Thomas, and he's a worse jumper than Thomas. And uh, although he fits through smaller uh, passageways, he's really worse than the other characters in almost every other way. Uh, and so he is very cynical, and he's very suspicious and irritable with the other characters. And um, he's jealous of their of their higher jumping abilities, and he thinks that they might be quietly mocking him behind his back. And there's John, the taller, higher jumper. John is a yellow, tall rectangle, taller than he is wide, and uh, he can jump quite high. And so he's very eager to show that off, and his whole personality is about um, showing off his skills and uh, and somewhat helping the other other squares, but feeling superior to them. Well, he helps them along so that he can continue to show how awesome he is. Yes, I think it even says at some point that uh, he thinks that the the other characters, the other uh, other uh, rectangles in the game, are there to there to sort of show his reflected glory. Yeah. And there's other characters that you'll meet as well. Um, some of them we'll leave for after the spoiler break. But um, uh, the next one that you meet in the in the course of the game, uh, in the very early levels, is Claire. And um, Claire is a very large blue perfect square. And Claire is actually probably my favorite female character in a video game in the, in recent years. <laughs> and I've played a lot of games. I thought Claire was so charming. And Claire is just a blue square, but... Uh, she lacks confidence. She moves very slowly, but during the first uh, first level that you play as her, you discover that she floats in water, and she realizes that this is her superpower. She's the only one of these characters who isn't killed when she falls into water. She floats, and so Claire's inner monologue is all about she's decided to become a superhero and save the other squares. And I just thought she was incredibly charming and fun. Yeah, it was it was pretty funny to see that progression, and uh, she her kind of storyline is trying to come up with a name and like she needs a nemesis and could how it be she's Chris? To... Yeah, <laughs> and yes, so uh, so great. All the characters in it were were fascinating, and yet all of them we never hear them speak, we never see them do anything at all. They are squares or rectangles on a screen that can do one thing: they can jump. Um, but Danny Wallace brings them all to life because he's doing this great stream of consciousness sort of narration where you're hearing all the thoughts of the characters as filtered through Danny Wallace's really humorous voice. Um, just absolutely makes the game. Yeah, I've never, I've never played a game like this, and it had such a, it's a, it's a total package because you're trying to figure out the puzzles first and foremost, but you have this kind of overarching sense of wanting to complete the puzzles because you want to find out more about the characters. Mm -hmm. You don't want to complete the puzzles because it's just standard puzzle game like, ah, this is frustrating. I got to figure it out because, like I said, they're not too terribly difficult. Once you get a hold of the mechanics, uh, you can you can get them pretty quickly. And some of them, you pretty much just walk right through them and it's more of a vehicle to get the story across. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have played a lot of other puzzle platformers, and I think the biggest challenge with puzzle platformers is sometimes the motivation to solve the puzzles is all your motivation as the player. You know, you know, solving the puzzles can sometimes feel a little, um, oh well, now I've got one more thing to do, and it's not a, uh, it's not something where there's a great drive to to complete or to finish or to or to move on through the game. Um, but this game gives you the character's motivation. So Thomas really wants to do this, and Claire really wants to do that. And because you connect with the characters, you really want to complete the puzzles. You want to help them overcome their obstacles. And that's what I think was just the brilliant thing about this game was a puzzle platformer, some people will connect with a puzzle platformer and find the motivation within themselves to want to complete all the puzzles. But that's not every gamer. But I think you have anybody with two thumbs and a heart 
is going to want to play this <laughs> game and help Claire succeed and help uh, help Chris overcome his uh, his you know his cynicism his cynicism yeah. and um, is going to want to see what's on the other side of all these portals what's going on well and since chris is probably the one of the most difficult characters to move you also kind of start feeling like grumpy towards chris too because it's <laughs> like uh now i gotta get chris across this body of water how am mm-hmm. i gonna do that john can just jump across it mm-hmm. and you kind of find your chris yeah well you kind of find yourself mimicking the feelings of the characters and it's like well no wonder he's so grumpy that used to get carried across every puzzle and no wonder john feels so awesome because john it's just almost every puzzle he just flies right through it but he's more of a tool to assist the other ones through it mm-hmm. so the story of the game is initially pretty murky um, because thomas sort of awakens in his world of you know boxes and hopping across small gaps and whatnot um, and he awakens and realizes he's alone and has no memory of anything before. Um, and he's observing the world as you're observing the world. And a lot of this, it's pretty unclear exactly what all of these little squares and rectangles and stuff are representing. Where are they? Who are they? Why are they here? What are they moving towards? And I'm not sure how much of that you think we want to save for after the spoiler break. Um, but Because actually, I came to the game not knowing much about it having not seen a lot of marketing for it uh, i think actually some of the marketing for this game does a little bit of a disservice to the player in that it spoils i think something that the characters discover and you as the player discover as you play through the game so for the sake of even though even though i think a lot of what we're about to discuss is in the marketing of the game i think i'd like to mark the spoiler break here so that if you haven't seen uh, for example, the blurbs about the uh, the game on its website or some of the other marketing that describes what is the world that Thomas inhabits, I think it might be better to save that for after the spoiler break. Are you with me, Nate? Sounds good. Okay, so here it is. Here is your spoiler break. On a side note, our spoiler break is the Amen break. I've been using... Um, using the famous Amen break as our as our spoiler break, uh, drum break. Are you familiar with that, Nate? No. <laughs> oh, it's really interesting. There's a whole documentary about it. Um, I, is that like the Wilhelm scream it, of it drum is. It's sounds. like the Wilhelm scream of drum sounds. It's a, um, uh, it's a break, a drum break, that was used in a song called, like, Amen Brother in, like, the... I don't even know when. It's been too long since I've seen the documentary about it. But it's something that you hear so often now in so many songs that once you hear it, you can't unhear it. You will hear it in practically any um, electronic music or hip hop or other music where drum breaks are heavily used. You will hear it everywhere. Interesting. I don't know how I haven't heard of that, especially considering that I play drums and listen listen to a lot of electronic music. <laughs> anyway. Here we are after the spoiler break. So the world that Thomas inhabits uh, is, as you discover sort of through reading uh, quotes at the beginning of each level, um, is Thomas is an AI. He is a newly awakened, newly, uh, newly aware artificial intelligence inside of a computer system uh, owned by a company uh, called Artificial Life Solutions. Uh, it seems like it's sort of a near-future science fiction type of scenario. Yeah, and you get quotes from um, from them directly, from outside newspaper sources, um, like different articles. It, it It's kind of talking about Thomas and everything in the past tense, as if it had all already happened. So as we're playing... Through Thomas, you know, discovering that he exists and that these other artificial intelligences in his computer mainframe world also exist. And as they're kind of exploring their world, you're hearing quotes about uh, about the world that are coming from um, uh, people who are seeing this from the outside. Like, um, the program was a failure. 
People forget this. It was a massive flop. The coders started adding name strings to the AIs as a joke. Thomas AT23612 wasn't special. He was just an AI in the right place at the right time. And it's quoting uh, Gordon Falkenberg, former CTO of Artificial Life Solutions. So you get the... You slowly realize that Thomas and the other AIs are aware sort of by accident. They were all artificial intelligences in some sort of large computer mainframe. But as you get further into the plot, you realize that what's happening here really is something that's going to change the world. Uh, as you read these new quotations at the beginning of each level coming from um, people like uh, programmers involved in the, in the project, or historians looking back on the project, or even, in one case, uh, an artificial intelligence uh, civil rights campaigner called Ryan192NC9S. Um, you're, uh, you're getting this picture of whatever events we're playing through here in the game are actually the emergence of not just these few artificial intelligences, but the emergence of artificial intelligence as, um, as essentially people. Um, our AI going out from these computer systems and becoming uh, a really important thing in the world. Yeah, and you as the player kind of play through their breakout, their escape from the computer and into the real world. Mm -hmm. So the plot of the game begins with Thomas and these other AIs sort of finding each other and making their way through their world, uh, but they soon sort of start coming up against um, things that seem to be trying to destroy them. There's a ominous pixel cloud that it seems is some kind of cleanup in the mainframe or some kind of thing trying to shut down the AIs, and you have to escape that. And they come across more AIs, like, for example, some of the characters that you meet later in the game are uh, Laura, who is a long, flat rectangle, uh, who is very bouncy. She kind of works like a trampoline for the other characters. And yeah, she's she great. was also she was awesome, but also very her and Chris were the two hardest to get across the map because they can jump uh, They They have the the lowest jump height yeah so. she can't jump over anything but she can help other characters jump yeah. over very large things and because uh, of her uh, ability to help other characters jump um she kind of has she's too ashamed to tell anybody about her uh about her ability she's embarrassed about her ability being essentially some being someone that other people can jump on um, and she's also concerned about people just using her and then disappearing which i thought was a really sort yeah. of charming character trait. Um, and then there's other characters you meet later on, like James, who is a uh, a green rectangle, identical to Thomas, except that his gravity is inverted and he falls up instead of down. Um, or Sarah, who uh, they meet towards uh, the uh, end of the sort of second act of the game, um, who leads this assembly of AIs uh, finally towards something that she calls the Fountain of Knowledge, which it becomes clear is actually the mainframe that they're all living in's internet connection. And um, that's sort of the, the climax of the plot is that after you've finally been able to lead Thomas and all of his uh, associates to this internet connected part of the mainframe, Thomas connects to the internet for 12 seconds and he gains all human knowledge. And because of that, um, he realizes that if he's going to help other AIs escape, he and the other a he and his friends have to sacrifice themselves in order to change the nature of the AI's system and allow all of the other AIs on the system out onto the wider internet. Yeah, and there's some kind of silly jokes that come up during this part too. <laughs> uh, part of me, I I thought it was really funny, and then part of me is like, man, you know, with how quickly like internet culture changes, like who knows if this will make any sense to anybody <laughs> in, in even like five years. So I'm worried a little bit about, you know, like the timelessness of this game. If the jokes don't hold up. Oh, because... I think that it's really only in this one moment when Thomas uh, connects to the internet and yeah. sees, you know, cats and uh, what else did he see? on the? Well, internet? they reference portal. He says, oh, did, uh, yeah. he says, uh, like Thomas was pretty sure there was some sort of cake, but that it might be a lie or something <laughs> to that extent. Yeah, that was a great moment because it was like suddenly these characters see the internet and they don't really understand it. And you hear 
Danny Wallace's sort of summary of all world knowledge within, you know, two lines of dialogue. I wouldn't say that much else of the game has a has a dated nature, but you might see no. that one element be a little bit dated in the future. But it, it was it was still pretty funny and, and it, a pretty interesting turn where now they pretty much acknowledge that they have to, like you said, sacrifice themselves. And the game kind of takes a little bit of a switch after they do that. Yeah, that was the most surprising part of the game for me, was that really at the end, the game is sort of three acts. You know, you've got the characters coming together in the first act, the very hero's journey, you know, the the characters all assemble, the fellowship assembles. And, and then in the second act, they're trying to uh, essentially, you know, toss the ring into Mount Doom, you know, where uh, they're trying to uh, to get to the creation matrix where they can all essentially fling themselves in and uh, by sacrificing themselves, reshape the world so that all of the other AIs, the innumerable AIs on the system can escape the mainframe and, uh, and emerge into the world. Um, and then the third act, once they've managed to do that, the game completely changes and throws some really new puzzle platforming mechanics at you with these new so you you then see all of these gray ais who don't have any of these special jumping abilities or other other abilities that um that thomas and his friends have but because thomas has reshaped the world and he's created switchers that allow these other characters to gain the various different jumping abilities that thomas and laura and james and john and claire all have um, suddenly you're essentially orchestrating a massive jailbreak where all of these AIs are essentially trying to get out and using the abilities that Thomas and Claire and Laura and everyone have granted them to escape the AI. Kind of, they look kind of like they're in the background, but it's like slanted lines that'll be the color of Thomas or Sarah or any of them, and that represents that character's power. And if you pass your gray block through those lines, they gain that power, but they can pass through multiple different colors and gain multiple different powers. Mm-hmm. So you you take control of Team Jump, which <laughs> Team is Jump was amazing. Which is basically, I think it's five very small cubes, and they can all jump relatively high. But you have to kind of orchestrate them, each one grabbing a different person's power to kind of stack them all together and move through these puzzles uh, in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And this was where it really took the training wheels off, and you had to demonstrate mastery of all of the great platforming and jumping mechanics that they'd created throughout the earlier parts of the game. So um, it was there that things started to really get hard. My only complaint about the game, and I love the game, I think it was it came off beautifully on every level. But I think if I had one complaint about the game, it was that the emotional climax of the game was at the end of the second act. And all of the great puzzle platforming that happened in the sort of third part of the game after that um, sort of lacked some of the emotional punch because the characters that you'd connected with in the first two acts um, were sort of present in nature, but not in person. Yeah, Um, I thought... That's my only criticism too, is is somewhat similar. I thought the story did get very murky in the last act like it was like i could tell that i was trying to get them out of there but it, i wasn't as attached to the, well team jump was really funny <laughs> it was pretty easy to get attached and to it's team got, jump, but it's kind of adorable but it did get a little murkier and a little less easy to tell mm-hmm. what and i was doing there was a sort of a villain character at the end there too and i don't even remember his name what was it he was sort of a was, large gray was he just gray 
There was Gray. Gray. Yeah, and then there was uh like Paul, I think mm-hmm. was another one. Mm-hmm. And it seemed as if Gray wanted to escape before the rest of the AI to to maybe do something nefarious. I think he essentially you're... wanted to be the only one to escape. Yeah. Um but uh, and then to sort of close the door behind him and leave the rest of them in there. So and what was interesting was you were kind of controlling Gray as well. So you were controlling both the quote-unquote good guys and the villain. Um, yeah. throughout most of this and outside of two levels there there's not really any kind of like chase mechanic or anything you're controlling everybody and you have as much time as you want to complete these puzzles but there is one where there's like a spike wall moving slowly behind you so you have to move across and another one where the water is rising and you have to move upwards otherwise you have as much time as you want to kind of explore the puzzle and figure it out for your own. Finally, the game ends with a the only three dimensional moment in the entire game, uh, which is you know your way of seeing that the escape of the AIs, the emergence of the AIs into the wider world, and uh, you know their uh, freedom. Uh, you see the outside world for just one shot, and we get this wall with a bunch of monitors mounted on it showing a bunch of computer code in the uh, artificial life solutions um, office presumably Uh, and you just see those monitors go white as presumably the whole mainframe has crashed everything inside has gone down but uh, but the other ais that thomas enabled to to escape onto the wider internet have escaped and now they're 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 free to begin their lives as whatever it is that they are really actually surprisingly emotionally effective like i really felt something about it which is something that's kind of strange to say when you look at the graphics of the game and you see this is a game about rectangles jumping around i got a little choked up when thomas jumped into the creation matrix and sacrificed himself and i got a little uh, i got a little excited and, and emotional when i found that you know the ais had escaped and everything was successful you know really a a great emotional experience in a game that you really don't expect to find that in And I do want to say, too, you know, while we say the graphics are incredibly simple, it is a very pretty game. That's true. It's it's uh, it kind of if you've played Limbo, while it's not as stark as Limbo, it's very similar in that it's 2D, but the colors are deep Mm -hmm. and the background is usually active to some extent, and it's it's a very pretty game. It is. Um, it's made in the Unity engine, and that's kind of an interesting part of the history of the game. Mike Bithell developed this game essentially in his spare time. Um, he was the uh, lead game developer at Bossa Studios, um, and he had initially made this game as a Flash game uh, in his spare time for some sort of a game jam. Um, and it, it essentially just had the puzzle platforming aspects, and I don't even think it had... I know it didn't have Danny Wallace's narration yet. I'm not even positive at that stage whether it had any dialogue or writing at all. But he made the game in its initial form, and then went back to it again in his spare time, you know, off hours, as a way of teaching himself the Unity engine, uh, at which he was very successful. This is a really well-done Unity game, even though it is very simple in its mechanic or in its in its graphics. Um, yeah. It's simple but deep, and it the is. music is is fantastic, which I've said multiple times. And that combined uh, the the nice, colorful graphics combined with a very climactic music and your emotional attachment to the characters does make the ending very cathartic. You're very uh, you feel like you've accomplished something. Yeah, the music is a really standout, great part of the game. Um, and what's really interesting about the music is that it was made by I'm just trying to find a quick detail because I want to actually give the guy's name. Um, it shows it. The second thing that comes up whenever you start the game after the Mike Bithell kind of studios aspect, it's uh, the name of the uh, creator of the music and his studios. So it is, you know, second billing behind the guy who created the game. Yeah. Um, the, the music was made by David Houston, um, who I had never heard of before. And I think, and I'm trying to find the details specifically here, but I think it was essentially something that he did right out of college. Like, he created some music for Mike Bithell um, kind of on spec, and they, uh, Mike Bithell really liked the music, and they ended up working together. Uh, some of the music is procedurally generated. Uh, like, there's sort of 
set music pieces and then there's variations on it between you know different versions of the music that come in and out uh, in some sort of procedural way but the music perfectly fits the game you know when you first meet thomas and he's alone and he's observing his universe the music has a sort of a melancholy feel kind of you feel the loneliness that he might be experiencing as things start building you you feel hopeful or excited it's really got a a great soundtrack that really carries the it, it and danny wallace both carry the emotional content of the game but i think that the music is at least as important as the narration in making you feel something for the characters absolutely it the whole package the the tone of the game is expertly crafted mm -hmm. and i think it couldn't have gone as well as it did without uh danny wallace who if you're not familiar with his work and i wasn't really before this game although i realized afterwards that i have seen him in numerous things um, he's a uh, comedian and uh, radio and television presenter and actor. Um, if you've seen uh, the uh, the IT crowd or the IT crowd, depending on how you pronounce it, um, the uh, the second episode of that show, he's in it. I don't remember what the character is that he plays, but he's you see him in a lot of different uh, sort of bit parts on British comedies. Uh, but he's also a writer. He's written numerous books, and um, he's really really well known in England because he he did. Uh, a show on XFM that was like a breakfast show. It's a, a radio show that's super popular, and um, it was a sort of a big cultural thing. He was he's well known there, and apparently um, Mike Bithell wrote the script with him in mind, and also with like with his humor and the humor of Douglas Adams as sort of the the main inspirations for the the humor of the game. And I really see that. I I love Douglas Adams, and I sort of felt his influence in this game, like really heavily but um, he went to Mike Bithell because he initially looked for other voice actors and just couldn't find anybody who could carry that humor of the game uh, and so he actually had a separate Indiegogo uh, fundraising campaign just to raise the money to hire Mike uh, excuse me to hire Danny Wallace to do this game and he raised something like 2,000 pounds and uh, got Danny Wallace to do the game and, uh, That's awesome. Yeah, I thought that was That's great. That's commitment. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Danny Wallace uh, won a, a BAFTA for his performance. Uh, BAFTAs it are like... Paid off. Yeah. Uh, the BAFTAs are sort of the, uh, the Oscars of, uh, of, of Britain. That's the British um, something or other film and television awards, and they also give awards for games. Um, so, uh, you know, good luck for both of them, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> you got anything else <laughs> not really i yeah. just think this game is so charming so fun yeah. and really a, a pretty uh I, I think this game could be played by absolutely anybody at any skill level because it has a really smooth difficulty curve it's also uh so it's not a it's not a punishing grind in any way it's charming i would watch this game played even without playing it myself because half of the fun of the game is just the humor and the charm of the characters and the narration. So if you haven't picked up this game and checked it out, uh, you really owe it to yourself to do so. And you have more options than ever now in how to do that. Yeah. And also it really only takes about three, four hours, maybe depending on your skill level. Uh, I think, I think I got it done in about three and a half hours. Yeah. So a, a good experience for a weekend or, you know, when you've got a few hours to sit down and play the game or play it in a few chunks. But I think once you start it, you're going to want to get through it. Um, you can play this game on uh, a Mac or a PC or under Linux. So you can buy the game either directly from the website of the developer, which we'll include a link to in the show notes. And that's probably the best way to support the developer. Um, you could also buy it through Steam. Uh, Steam has the game right now for, I think it's $9.99. Is that right? I believe so. And it's also been in several of the Humble Bundles, most notably the most recent Humble Bundle it was a part of. So it, and it, whenever they do a Steam sale. It's been a part of it. Mm -hmm. I, I you can you can very likely get it for very cheap, yeah. If it's not currently available for that, but worth every penny, even if you're buying it completely oh, yeah. at full price. Absolutely. So Absolutely. if you have an opportunity to play this game, please do. A couple of other really great things. This game was a part of Sony's recent push to get 
indie games onto the PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Vita. So um, Mike Bithel didn't develop that version himself, but if you own a Vita, I think if you're a PlayStation Plus subscriber, you get this game for free. I think also That's on the right. PS3. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can buy it for 10 bucks, and it's cross-play so that you can play it on either your PS3 or your PlayStation Vita and apparently uh, pick up or save on both and you know sort of play on either either device and also on that platform there's some additional content that's offered as dlc called benjamin's flight i think uh, which introduces another character a, a rectangle with a jetpack i have not played that uh, because that is uh, exclusive to the playstation platform from what i've heard it's neat but not at all vital to the structure of the game i think it essentially happens as a prequel to the plot of the main game so if you're wanting as much uh rectangle as possible you may want to try the uh, the playstation version you know i've been playing uh on my phone the that 2048 game a little bit <laughs> and so i have just been surrounded by cubes mm-hmm. lately that is a, a pretty neat game uh, also threes which is yeah. the game on which it is based and we love that game so much so if you uh, if you're interested in uh, more rectangles <laughs> <laughs> with little little personalities to them um try threes that's a really charming game um so yeah you've got so many opportunities to play this game now uh, mike bithel is working on a brand new game that he's tweeting about quite a bit called volume i think it looks really promising it's a stealth game that is uh centered around a character called loxley so it's sort of a science fiction retelling of the uh robin hood robin hood yes yeah really looks cool uh, visually it looks neat but it's also uh got some interesting concepts it's a, a totally non-lethal entirely stealth based game and uh it's got a british narrator i think danny wallace is back of course <laughs> and it's also got a, uh, a kind of an interesting mechanic where you're you're using your stealth to break into i think corporate something or others uh, and then you're in game uh, character Loxley is streaming his adventures to his fans on some sort of futuristic version of YouTube uh, to kind of encourage people to follow in his footsteps and take down the man. It looks like a really neat game, and um, Mike Bithel is tweeting about it a lot. Follow him on Twitter at Mike Bithel. Um, I'll put a link to his Twitter profile in the show notes. So even if you're not interested in Thomas Was Alone or his upcoming game, Volume, you really should follow him. He is a fantastic person to follow on Twitter if you're just interested in game design and video game news on the indie scene. You can also follow our show on Twitter, at underscore short game, or you can, of course, visit our show on the web. We've got a great website all set up for you to check out at www.theshortgame.net. Uh, one of the main features on the site, apart from just listening to our awesome uh, podcast, is that you can see what our upcoming episodes are, and we're going to do our best to make sure we keep you updated if you want to uh, play the games that we're going to be talking about in advance, which may be the best way to listen to the podcast if you can. Check it out there. Also, if you want to suggest a game to us, we're always open for uh, suggestions, playing new games. Uh, let us know. Absolutely. We would love to hear from you if you have a game that you want to hear about or that you loved and you would like us to check out. You can let us know on Twitter, on our Facebook page, or there's a form on our website. You can follow Nate on Twitter as well. What's your handle, Nate? You can follow me at NateSTL. And you can follow me at Reagan K. And I spell that funny. I'm R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. So Ray Gank. Ray Gank, if you will. Yeah. So yeah, this has been a great episode. I was really glad that you got the chance to to chat with me about this today, Nate. I'm absolutely I love this game and um I'm gonna be keeping an eye on this developer for sure. Definitely. I'm looking forward to volume. Me too. Thanks for listening. Did you hit stop? No, I haven't yet. Okay. I sometimes let it run for a minute just because uh, you never know if we'll say something really amusing. <laughs> say something really just, amusing, Nate. Uh, you can just drag and drop. I was at uh, Shop and Save the other day, and they were selling watermelons that were very small, and they had them listed as personal watermelons. <laughs> and I thought that was very nice because I'm so sick and tired of people assuming that my watermelon is for them. And finally, there's an option for me to have my own personal watermelon. Yeah, Mom. This is my watermelon. <laughs> Don't touch my watermelon, Mom. This is a personal watermelon. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs>
So there, there's something interesting. <laughs> okay, that's definitely going into the final edit.